The Association for Science and Information on Coffee, or ASIC, annual conference was held virtually from June 28th to July 1st in Montpellier, France. Here at the center, we strive to make the research and academic work being done in coffee accessible to those who can benefit from it the most. In today's episode, I want to share with you some of the exciting research that came from this conference, some implications for the industry, and add a bit of my own thoughts into the mix. The conference consisted of keynote presentations, some live and some pre-recorded, and poster sessions, where research was presented in a pre-recorded format and a time of Q&A followed. The pre-recorded presentations allowed the information to be presented extremely professionally and precise. The Q&A session that followed was facilitated live, which was also a nice added touch. Topics covered plant science, plant pathology, farm management, green coffee processing, sustainability, climate change, biochemistry, biotechnology, roasted coffee technology, and so much more. Personally, I'm always excited to hear the research done on coffee processing, agronomy, and sensory science. Particularly of interest to me was the keynote presentation by Dr. Bitoff, as I've followed and referenced much of his research in the past, as well as many of the sessions that shared information regarding the impact post-harvest processing has on green coffee quality. It would be impossible to cover all of the sessions, but let's dive in and discuss some of the highlights. The honorary president of ASIC gave the welcoming address. Overall, he charged the research community with expanding work in soil science and tripling the resources for R&D in producing countries. He strongly encouraged our industry to take a regenerative society approach as we push toward a carbon zero world. This means we focus more on replenishing and less extractive type activities as a society. He mentioned the importance of research on new varieties and specifically focus on increasing resilience, productivity, and sensory qualities. The overall message was encouraging and I think a great challenge for our industry. In addition to his comments, I would add my own note here on the discussion concerning reducing our global carbon footprint. I am starting to have concerns on how we discuss agriculture's role, i.e. producing countries, in climate change and carbon emissions discussions. Often we see attention being focused on agriculture's role in carbon emissions. And while I wholeheartedly agree with this and believe we need to focus efforts here, I also want to encourage our industry that it is not just the cultivation and processing of coffee that shoulders the entirety of the weight in this situation. I hope that we can continue discussing and seeing how the distribution, roasting, brewing, and more of coffee on the consuming side of the industry can be addressed with the same gusto of reducing carbon emissions. Though agriculture does play a role, if you begin to dive down and look at those countries which are the main contributors to carbon emissions, you will not find the producing nations of the world collected at the top of the list. The takeaway here is that we should attack reducing our carbon footprint as a 
balanced approach across all points of our industry. And I hope we can hear more and put more focus to the consuming side of the industry and not just the producing. Okay, okay, back to ASIC. E.E. Lockhart might be a name you recognize. If you've taken any brewing classes that utilize his brewing control chart to evaluate brewed coffee. This work, done back in the 1950s, essentially identifies the ideal range that the general public prefers brute coffee. In recent decades, much of this work has been called into question with the advance of specialty coffee, but also with the explosion of new markets onto the scene of coffee consumption. To discuss the findings presented, we need to make sure we are on the same page with terminology. There are three elements to the brewing control chart. TDS, percent extraction, and brew ratio. In brewed coffee, we understand that roughly 1-2% to of the beverage is coffee. The rest is good old H2O, which we won't dive into the impact or often lack of focus given to essentially 98% of what we consume. But there are fantastic resources out there if you'd like to know more. In ground roasted coffee, roughly 20 to 24% of the compounds present are soluble. This means even if we steep coffee grinds in water for eternity, only a certain amount will extract. Therefore, you typically find a brew chart plot the percent of dissolved solids and the total percent extraction present in the brew. In addition, the brew chart will have a ratio of water to ground coffee, usually represented by a diagonal line. This typically ranges in 1 to 13 to 1 to 20, or 1 to 20 plus. Lockhart's research, which we could dive into the validity of, but we won't, showed that mid-range TDS and mid-range extraction resulted in the ideal or optimal beverage. Different ratios could be used to attain this, but the range was around the 1 to 15 to 1 to 17. Reach out to me if you'd like to know more about how the brewing control chart works. I'd love to share some of those resources with you. If you've been in coffee any amount of time, you've realized that what is ideal varies across cultures, market segments, products, and more. UC Davis, out of the U.S., has been working on the creation of a new brewing control chart with up-to-date research. During ASIC, they presented their findings, which were rather interesting. Essentially, they identified that there are multiple preferences based on different market segments and preferred sensory characteristics. I was not able to identify if they were proposing a U.S.-based control chart or a global control chart. However, I would contend that a global control chart would find even greater variances and preferences. I see this personally play out often in cupping events where coffees with extended fermentations are evaluated with a group of international cuppers. The preferences and results tend to vary widely which I don't want to give away too much, but we will be diving into this more in future episodes. The findings of UC Davis's research showed that consumer preference was clustered around three different regions. Mid-level extraction with low TDS, 
low extraction with high TDS and high extraction with mid-range TDS. In other words, the preferences are mixed. A final note here. When we begin talking about the ideal range of consumer preference, we need to remember that the way coffee is consumed and the norms established in those consuming markets, such as black coffee versus milk and sugar, with your coffee, uh, espresso versus uh, V60 pour over impact how those preferences are established. I contend that a brewing control chart is great, but not so we can tell consumers what they should or should not like. And we can all probably share examples of times when we've tried to tell new people in coffee what is good or what is not good coffee. And I don't believe it's the goal of UC Davis's research to tell consumers what is good, but rather roasters, cafes, and, and even producers can know the taste preferences of the general public in order to provide them with coffee that meets this demand. There was a host of genetic research presented at the conference, a work focusing on variety genetics, leaf rust, naturally decaffeinated varieties, and so much more. If, if genetics or these are of any interest to you, reach out to me. I'd be happy to send you over some of the resources. On the third day of the event, Dr. Gerard Bitoff began the day's events with a keynote presentation on coffee post-harvest processing. As I shared, Dr. Bitoff's work has been something I've read and followed over the years. He has done extensive work on researching specifically the impact post-harvest processing has on coffee, as well as many other topics. The presentation was full of great reminders of research and work that has been done around the impact of coffee post-harvest processing on quality. Of particular importance was his discussion around quality development or quality preservation in post-harvest processes. Essentially, you have a traditional and and rather strong voice in our industry that views post-harvest processing as a means to preserve quality. Uh, Basically, the goal is just to not stuff it up. And you have a growing challenge to this notion of quality development during post-harvest processing. Uh, Basically, can we increase and improve the quality of the coffee during these steps? It was beyond the scope of a 45-minute keynote to decide this. However, Dr. Bitoff did an excellent job reminding our community that post-harvest process must refocus on the coffee bean as a seed that undergoes various metabolic activities, specifically related to germination, based on the steps that you take, as well as the exciting potential, which research is proving, for molecules to be absorbed or adhere to the coffee seed during processing. And I'll I'll note here that this is something that many people who are teaching and instructing on coffee processing have continued to, to reinforce, that we must identify and look at coffee as a seed and not just thinking of it as a bean. Therefore, a new approach is warranted that respects and acknowledges both interactions. Along these lines, I have to share a personal interaction I've had in the past that's left me a bit concerned. There is a very popular and widely known cupping competition hosted around the world, and one of the head judges noted at one point that a particular processing method causes the flavor of processing to overcome 
the flavors of origin. Personally, I have concerns around this viewpoint. Now, I, I've never been part of this company competition and, and do not suggest knowing all the rules. But I hear statements like this often, and many times they throw around the word terroir. This mythical, poetic notion that the quality of coffee has to do solely with the soil it's grown in or the environmental conditions, and the role of the producer is just to not stuff it up. To be frank, we need to move away from this inaccurate and incomplete understanding of coffee quality. Now, does the soil and environment impact the quality potential of coffee? Absolutely. But as Dr. Bitoff noted, do not the choices of the producer and, and their skill as a producer equally impact quality? And does their involvement or, or imparting of their experience or their skills somehow lessen the purity or the, the quality of that coffee? Should one be prized or elevated above the other? In my opinion, if we are going to use the word terroir and herald it as a means to market and sell coffee, then the actions and steps the producer takes to create that coffee, in addition to the environment, genetic, soil, and so much more, must be included within this definition. The decisions a producer would take in post-harvest processing should not be limited, but encouraged as they seek to create value and place their mark on coffee. All right, all right, back to ASIC. Day three continued with an intriguing pre-recorded session by Dr. Christophe Montagnon of RD2 Vision in collaboration with Dan Daniel Darren, the CEO of Alliance for Coffee Excellence, or ACE. They analyzed the results of over 3,000 different winners across 15 years from 15 countries to consider some common characteristics. There were some remarkably interesting findings reported, but first, we must take into consideration that the findings presented need to be understood within the context that they represent COE, that is the cup of excellence, coffees, which must comply with certain processing rules and are not necessarily represented of the overall global coffee qualities. Producers are selective as to the coffees they submit, and the sample studied would not be considered a randomized sample representative of the entire coffee population. Uh, also, the results are from 2002 to 2017, so there's not any information included from the last four years of competitions. And yes, Dr. Christoph did clearly explain this in his presentation. That being said, here were some of the findings. There was no correlation when looking at the 15 different countries between elevation and cup score. This means that in a range of elevation from 600 meters up to 2,000 plus meters, there was no strict identifier of an elevation number that correlated to a certain cup score. This would make sense because we understand elevation is relative to the latitude location, that is, the distance from the equator. However, they did find that within a given country, the higher the elevation, the higher the cup score. 
So while a specific elevation number, say 1300 meters, wasn't identified as always leading to a high cup score, it was understood that within a specific region, the higher the elevation, the cup scores were also higher. The overall average scores were higher for Ethiopian varieties, as well as, and, and this was interesting, higher in yellow varieties as opposed to red varieties. Geisha and Pacamara were among the top varieties in score. I, I will just add here, though, that it's important to note that the genetics of these two varieties are quite unstable. It would be really interesting to know the specific morphological characteristics of these geisha winners, as, as not all geishas are equal. Uh, feel free to reach out to me if you'd like to know more about this specific topic. In addition, the analysis noted that for COE coffees that topped out in the competitions from 2002 to 2017, again, complying to all the rules and regulation for processing protocols, that these out of these coffees, elevation and variety were key to cup quality. There were several other findings, but I found this information intriguing and enjoyed seeing the presentation of these findings in a comparative analysis format. Day four wrapped up several discussions on coffee genetics and farming techniques. There was a presentation by Dr. Aaron Davis on Coffea stenophila, which if you have not checked out the episode we did on that, uh, you definitely should. There is so much more we could dive into from this conference. I am grateful to ASIC for making this available virtually, but I did find myself many times wishing there were those opportunities for drinks and further discussion. Maybe next year. Did you happen to catch any sessions? What were your thoughts? I'd love to hear your reflections, comments, and thoughts on this information. You can always reach out to us here at the center by emailing podcast at thecenter.coffee. You can drop a note in the show notes or give us a follow on Instagram at thecenter.coffee. That's a wrap for today. I'm Tim Hines with The Center and thanks for listening. And as always, keep learning. Keep learning.